Lord, we come to you today, a day we set aside to be reminded, Lord, of the wonderful power of your resurrection. And Lord, we come to a passage in your holy word where you are on display in a magnificent way. And yet, Lord, you want us not just to see you, but to see what it is that you do in us, how you show us that in your words. So, Lord, today, may our hearts be humble. May they be teachable. May you use, Lord, your word to fashion and shape us to be more and more like your son. Or, Lord, for those who do not know you, to awaken in us uh, the beauty and the majesty of your gospel. Allow me, Lord, to be faithful to proclaim your truth for your glory. Lord, to these people who are here, we ask in your precious holy name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I must admit to you that as a pastor, um, choosing a passage for Resurrection Sunday has always been somewhat of a challenge. And the reason being is because there's so many places you can go to, and they accomplish so many different things. And quite frankly, you could just default by going to the same text over and over and over again. I mean, you could go to places like, you know, to talk about the story of the resurrection, which are absolutely incredible passages of Scripture. We read some today where we're told about uh, the, the sadness of the followers of Christ at his death and that changing to joy and elation at the news of his resurrection, just as he had said. Or we could go to passages where we find the facts of the resurrection. Places like 1 Corinthians 15, that, where Paul is emphasizing the importance of the resurrection as that keystone to the gospel. We could do that, and we've done that. We could talk about the preaching of the resurrection, and quite frankly, we have done that for over a year as we've gone through the book of Acts. Every Sunday was a resurrection Sunday because the book of Acts was just full of the preaching of the resurrection. But we can also turn to the powerful life that the resurrection provides. Places where we're, we're shown not just that it's a historical fact, but that it actually gives life to God's people, changes the way we act and we think and behave. And so, friends, my practice as I have work through Resurrection Sundays year after year is to first ask the question, is there anything in the book that we're working through that's going to point us to the resurrection? Secondly, is there anything in the, the upcoming text that we're working through that is going to emphasize the resurrection? And what we find as we come to Philippians chapter 2 verses 1 through 11 is that the resurrection is present. It's not mentioned but it certainly is implied. Look, if you would, please, at verses 6 through 11. In particular, I want you to notice verse 6. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself, and becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of on a cross. That is Christ's humiliation, his incarnation, his suffering, his ultimate death. But notice what it says in verse 9. 
Therefore God has highly exalted him. Friends, exaltation, Christ's exaltation begins with his resurrection. It continues on with his ascension and ends up with his glorified status on the throne. And so although the resurrection isn't specifically in the text, it is there implied by means of this exaltation. What is the resurrection if it is not exaltation? And this passage doesn't stand alone in this book. It is placed carefully as the reference point of Paul's argument, both before and after verses 6 through 11. Now, I live up, at, uh, up on the hills of, of, of Hayward, and years ago when people would ask, hey, hey, Pastor Rob, where do you live? There was always a reference point that I could turn to. If you remember at Cal State, East Bay, it used to be Cal State Hayward, there was this towering building called Warren Hall. You could see from all across the East Bay. And I would just point to that tower and say, see that tower? I live just a couple of blocks from there. Then in 2013, they decided to implode it. I no longer have a reference point. I just live up in the hills by the university. That reference point, though, helped mark where I lived. And this particular passage, verses 5 through 11, in the context of the book of Philippians, is a reference point. Everything before it is kind of pointing to it. Everything that is spoken of flows out of it. Why? Because it shows Jesus in his majesty, his humiliation, his exaltation. And so this beautiful picture of humiliation and exaltation of Christ is given to us as an example of how the Philippian church should be pursuing unity through humility, a unity that flows out of the resurrection. Now, friends, if you are a child of God, Paul says in Philippians, you are a citizen of heaven. The moment you embrace Christ as your Lord and Savior, you became a citizen of a new place, of heaven. You may not be there right now. You may be happy about that because you want to be here for a bit. But Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, right? And you have the confidence and certainty that you are a citizen of heaven. And so what Paul is doing in this passage is, is he's calling citizens of heaven to pursue unity through humility fueled by the example of Christ. Now, I want you to notice this emphasis in our text on unity and equality. And of course, in our society today, there is a cry for unity. It's a cry for equality. But friends, true unity, true equality can only be achieved when Christ rules the hearts of all men. What makes us one is that we are united in Christ with the ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit who resides in us. Now, friends, we need to understand this passage. Paul is not speaking evangelistically. He's speaking to the church about its attitude to itself. Now, be clear, the Philippian church is a healthy church, but they are in danger of allowing disagreements to disrupt their 
unity. You notice in verse 14 of our passage, or of, of chapter 2, we find grumbling and disputing is something that he's pointing to. And then in chapter 4, verse 2, there's this famous conflict between Yodia and Syntyche. So Paul now calls for a Christ-centered unity, a mindset that is rooted in the gospel, and that can only take place because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection, this, this life now that comes as a result of what Jesus Christ has done in us. You and I will not want to even do what Paul is calling for in this text if it were not for the life now that we have because of the resurrection. So, let's jump into this passage. First of all, we want to look at pursuing unity. Unity through humility is commanded. And I want you to notice how this passage begins with this word, so. In verse 1 here, so is used there to introduce this section. Of course, it can be translated therefore, which means it's, it's arguing, continuing a thought and an argumentation that Paul has already been making. In verses 27 through 30 of chapter 1, Paul has been arguing for the church to stand together. In other words, to, to be united like a shield wall, if you remember that as they face those that are opposed to the church, opposed to the gospel. The church unites and stands caring for one another, protecting one another, serving one another as they encounter that kind of opposition. But such unity is not only to take place when opposition rises. It is a unity that is rooted in our fellowship in Christ. We don't just unite to take on opponents. We unite to be the body of Christ, to enjoy the fellowship that we have in Christ. So here's the question. When there's discord among God's people, how are we to counsel one another to press on and glorify God? How do we urge unity among believers? And Paul's answer is simple, yet it's difficult because of our sinful hearts. Well, this is what he says. We appeal to everyone involved to evaluate two relationships. Their relationship to Christ and their relationship to one another. Because with your relationship to Christ comes a consistent kind of blessing. And with your relationship to one another, you share some common goals that he commands. And so it forces us to ask, is this, is what I'm doing right now, is the way I'm speaking, is the way I'm behaving, is the way I'm thinking what Christ wants me to do? Will it bring glory to him? Am I thinking, acting, speaking, and behaving in a way that shows that I'm a child of God? Is this what will move my relationship with other Christians forward? Or will it bring struggle and heartache? Am I thinking, acting, speaking, and behaving in a way that shows that I'm a, follower, uh, I'm a follower of Christ and I want to be obedient to God by pursuing those same goals to glorify God. So verses 1 and 2 is basically one sentence that lays out two reasons why the Philippian church are to pursue unity. It's because they share the same genetic code. Secondly, they share the same common a community goal. Let's look at this, this, this idea of they share the same genetic code. This is verse 1. 
So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection, any sympathy. Paul begins his argument by emphasizing the blessings that the Philippians already have in Christ because of the gospel. And he uses the word if at the beginning, not to indicate some kind of a hypothetical condition, but to emphasize their reality. Paul has no doubt that the Philippians are enjoying these blessings. Now, the if can be better understood by the word since. Since there is encouragement in Christ. Since there is comfort from love. Since there is participation in the Spirit. Since there is affection and sympathy, then you have the foundation to pursue unity. Now, based on a similar formula that Paul uses at the end of 2 Corinthians, we can see that in this list here, it's likely Trinitarian. Just turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 14. And I just want you to see the similarity of what he says there and compare it to what he says here. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. He says there, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. You see the Trinitarian nature of what he's saying there? And we go back now to our passage, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, there's the Father's dynamic, any participation in the Spirit, any affection, any sympathy. So it's, it's basically saying that we share these characteristics of our heavenly citizenship. We have encouragement in Christ. We have comfort uh, from the love of the Father. We have participation in the Spirit. We have affection and sympathy. Paul is reminding the church that their unity already exists because they are citizens of heaven and share in heaven's DNA, its genetic code. If you have ever experienced encouragement in Christ, if you've ever experienced the comfort from the love of God or the fellowship that comes through the Holy Spirit, then you are a citizen of heaven. You're marked with a gospel DNA. And your spiritual DNA will naturally move you toward unity in the body of Christ. This is our shared genetic code, which moves us then to a shared community Goal. Notice what he says next. Verse 2. Complete my joy. Being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. This shared community goal is what we maintain in Christ. In other words, this doesn't happen automatically. This is where we have some work to do. And since those of us who are true followers of Christ share the same DNA then it's only natural that we would want to look to maintain the kind of unity that he has provided for us. So Paul moves from this corporate dynamic of what we all share now to the personal responsibilities that we have as members of the body of Christ. We share a genetic code, and as such, we are moved now to certain responsibilities that he gives us. And that responsibility is listed here 
as like-mindedness or unity. Now, when seen in context, the words of Paul here at the beginning really are truly compelling. He says, complete my joy. Remember, Paul's in prison. He is potentially awaiting his death. Now, he's under house arrest, and he may not be as, you know, in in terrible situation as we might think, but he's still in prison. He's still uncertain as to what's going to be happening next. And I would expect that if you and I were in his situation, we would be saying, make my joy complete by bringing me some relief from my suffering. Or make my joy complete by helping me be released from prison. But that's not Paul's attitude. His attitude is not earthly. His attitude is heavenly-minded. His joy is something far more important than the physical struggles he may be facing in jail. What brings Paul joy is the unity of the body of Christ. Let me just pause there. Does that bring you joy? Is that something that you want to see maintained among the body of Christ? Paul is saying it should be. This should naturally flow out of our shared genetic code. Now, friends, as parents, we want the best for our kids, don't we? A number of you have kids or have had kids, but you want the best for your kids. You want them to do well in school, to participate in sports and clubs with the goal of them being successful in life. In life. And, and those are natural thoughts and attitudes that uh, we likely have. But for the parent who is in Christ, we are more likely to say something like this. It doesn't matter to me if you're an engineer, teacher, a dock worker, stay-at-home mom, an electrician. What matters to me is that you love the Lord and that you're living your life for his glory. And when it comes down to it, I'll be proud of whatever you choose to do, but what my heart truly longs for is that your heart is oriented to God and that you're seeking his will day by day. That's what a parent who's in Christ is truly longing for. And that's what Paul is longing for here, for the Philippian church. What matters to Paul, what will bring Paul joy is their like-mindedness, their unity in the gospel. Now notice the words Paul uses here in verse 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Same, same, full accord, one mind. All these words describing this this unity, this, this same mind. Now Paul, it's important we understand here what he isn't saying. He's not calling for all Christians to look the same. He's not calling for all Christians to act exactly the same in every situation. Being united citizens of heaven is not some homogeneous Orwellian society where everyone looks the same, dresses the same, acts the same, thinks the same. He isn't saying that we all have the same taste in food, the same taste in music, in recreation, in fashion. No, heavenly citizenship is not a cult where everyone must conform to external standards. But it is a citizenship where we are called to have the same mindset. And we're going to find out in just a little bit that the mindset that he's saying that we need to have, the attitude that we need to have is the the mind of Christ. But for now, we'll just see that Paul is after here 
not merely words or actions or activities. It's an attitude of the mind, of the heart, that brings unity to the body of Christ. Friends, these are all basic dynamics of being a heavenly citizen. This is what we all have in common if we're followers of Christ. This is who we are, what we experience, the context that we live in because we have been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, by the power of his resurrection. And because of that, we we look at life differently. And we want to look at it through, through the lens of the gospel. So we've all been, if we're followers of Christ, we've been the recipients of the blessings of his grace. And so out of those blessings, we're called to pursue unity with the rest of the body. So what does that unity look like? Well, that's what we see now in verses 3 and 4. We pursue unity, but we want to embrace this attitude of humility. Now, earlier in Paul's letter, Paul challenged the Philippian church to not view life through a human lens, but rather a spiritual one. If you remember, they were concerned about him being in prison, and his response was almost shocking because he says that my suffering serves to advance the gospel. Humanite thinking, divine thinking, right? Thinking about life through a different lens. And friends, it's only natural for us to tend to view life from a human perspective. That is, that is the natural way we think. But the unity that Paul is appealing for us to embrace here flows out of our sanctification, flows out of our growth in Christ, flows out of this new life that he's called us to. He wants us to move from human thinking to gospel thinking. That's just part of our progress in Christ, isn't it? All of us, if we're children of God, are being moved steadily day after day. And that's why we plug ourselves into the spiritual disciplines of of reading God's Word and studying God's Word, sitting under God's Word, and taking time to pray, and, and all the other things. Why? Because God is moving us in a certain direction. So what does unity or that mindset look like? And that's what Paul now is seeking to give us a picture of. Unity through humility now is explained. But first, I do want to talk about what this unity doesn't look like. And I think it's helpful here before we actually look at what Paul says it does look like. It's not calling for a blanket kind of unity. For example, can't we all just get along? Have you ever gotten to the place, there's so much happening in this world, it's so chaotic, and you're just like, look, can't we just all get along? You just want to kind of like stand up and yell and just catch everyone's attention and say, look, will you just behave? Can't we all just get along? Can't we just agree to disagree and come together? But that's not the kind of unity he's talking about. He's not calling for a playground kind of unity. You know, the kind of thing that happens when there's kids playing on the playground and with a basketball and one kid gets upset with the other and they're fighting over this basketball and the fight breaks out. And so an adult comes over and sets them aside and says, all right, you need to say, I'm sorry. And so he says, I'm sorry. And you need to say, you're sorry, I'm sorry. And they both go away and no one is sorry. It's not that kind of unity. That isn't unity. So it's not a blanket unity. It's not a playground kind of unity. It's not a God is love unity, which is a very, very common one in our culture today, isn't it? Where, where, where this idea of God's love is manipulated to, to, to kind of force us to accept and embrace and affirm any and every person, no matter their sinfulness, based on the teaching that God is love. 
Friends, what we have here is a conditional unity. Let me say that might shock you. Let me just walk you through what we've already read so far. The encouragement, comfort, affection, and sympathy exists because of Christ and our unifying participation in the Holy Spirit. The unity that's being called for here is not some kind of a unity that the world understands. It is unique to us as citizens of heaven. We who have experienced the power of the resurrection, who are living new life, now are able to pursue this kind of conditional unity. And so in our context, it means that what, we, what unites us is the Word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's just, let's just kind of take those in turn. The gospel of Jesus Christ. It is what Christ has done for us. We could do nothing for ourselves. He drew us to himself, and through his death, his burial, and his resurrection, he cleansed us from our sins. He paid our debt. He satisfied God's wrath. He embraced us into his family, and he made us citizens of heaven. And so the first condition for our unity is that we belong to Christ. That is a condition of our unity. Paul is not speaking here of evangelism. He's not speaking to the society that is out there. He's speaking to the church and calling the church to have a mindset that flows out of who they are in Christ. Secondly, we're also united by the Word of God, which is breathed out by the Holy Spirit of God. And the Holy Spirit then works through the Word of God to fashion and shape us to be what God wants us to be. What Christ says And what Christ means when he says it matters to the citizen of heaven. He or she wants to hear it, to embrace it, and obey it. I mean, do you care what God says? Does it matter to you that this is the instruction of the Lord, therefore I am going to seek to apply that to my life? Or is it only when it's convenient for you? Paul is saying, listen, Here is this opportunity for unity, and the the way it is conditional is that it's fashioned by the fact that you are one of mine, I've chosen you, you are now part of the body of Christ, you're citizens of heaven, and you uniquely have the word of God to guide you. So having kind of worked, first of all, through this whole idea then of embracing humility, what unity doesn't look like, let's think now about what unity does look like from the words of Paul. And he uses two statements. Each of the statements begin with a negative and end up with a positive. True unity doesn't do X, Y, Z, but it does do this. In this case, it's not selfish ambition or or, or conceit, but it's humility. It's not being concerned about one's own interest, but the interest of others. And what we see is that there is a unity that is marked by selfless humility. But let's just focus in then on, look at the dominant, the positive side here in light of the negative that is mentioned. Look at verse 3, and we'll we'll, we'll emphasize here the humility that he's calling for. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Selfish ambition says, I want 
something. I'm going to get something for myself. You are in my way, and I'm going to have to use you to get my way. It's marked by a what is it in, what's in it for me attitude. It says, how can I turn this for my personal gain? Selfish ambition. Then there's conceit. It says, I'm better than you. <laughs> I'm smarter than you. I'm wiser than you. I'm older than you. I'm a man. I'm a woman. It says, I've got more money than you, more influence than you, more education than you, more status than you, more authority than you. That is not the way of the child of God. That is not the way of a citizen of heaven. That is the way of the world around us. And it was the, the, the attitude and the thinking that was prevalent in Paul's day. And it's still here today, isn't it? But what Paul calls for here is humility. Which, by the way, in Paul's culture, the Greco-Roman culture, was not considered a virtue. In fact, it was considered a shortcoming or a sign of weakness. So what Paul is calling for is completely counter-cultural. Big surprise there. This is what Christ does. It means placing oneself totally and completely under the sovereign hand of God. It's not a false modesty that says, no, 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 I'm really not that good. Thank you for those accolades, but it's not really, really true. No. True humility has to do with a proper estimation of oneself. You know who you really are. It has to do with creatures standing before their creator, utterly dependent and trusting. You are the sovereign God. And I am your slave. True humility, then, is not self-focused, but considers others better than oneself. It is this attitude that the Greeks so despised, and which makes little sense today, that has become the highest virtue for the child of God. There's a lot of things that Paul could be saying, make my joy complete. But he's calling here for an attitude, a mindset of humility. Not only we have humility, we also have being others-focused. This is verse 4. Let each of you not only look on his own interests, but also look to the interests of others. The key word here to help us understand what Paul is saying here is the word only. We're not to look only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. So back off here when we say, when we talk about humility, we're not talking about abject humility where we're like, you know, we're doormats, sure, just come walk all over me. That's not what's being talked about here. This is what a true parent does, isn't it? They don't sit down for a meal and ignore their children's need for food. No, they cook the food, and they know that they have to eat, but in knowing that they have to eat and they're hungry, they know also that their children are hungry. So they're going to make food for their children, and they're going to serve their children food. Concerned about your own interests, but you're also, as a parent, concerned about the interests of your kids. 
When you're outside and it gets cold and you're with your children, what do you do? Well, you'll say, well, I'm just going to put my jacket on, but my child's just going to stay there and suffer. No, you're more concerned about the child having a jacket on. You dote on the children to your own expense. When you get that child into a car, you don't just jump in and put the seatbelt on and not worry about the child. No, you're worried about the child. You want to make sure that child is safe. You're thinking about others more than yourself. And friends, this is what's necessary in developing friendships. If your attitude isn't others-focused, you will have a hard time seeing that that friendship flourishing. You will not make much progress in developing friendships if you do not have an attitude that is considering others before yourself. Maybe you've met that kind of a person. They, they want to have a friendship with you, and you get with them, and all they do is talk about themselves. You know what I'm talking about? Maybe you are that person. But it's hard. And I understand people have struggles and needs and that kind of stuff, but the point is, friendship is built on this Mutual thinking of each other and growing because of that. And friends, this is also true in the church. We all have struggles and concerns, don't we? And we all came in here today burdened with, is my casserole going to burn? Is the ham going to be tasty? Are people going to enjoy the, I mean, all different kinds of things? Right? That's kind of a temporal nonsense kind of thing. But we, we have other burdens and concerns. Last night we got a phone call. My daughter Deanna was being rushed to the hospital. That's a concern. On the night before celebrating Resurrection Sunday, these are things that happen in life. Just so you know, she's doing fine. She popped her knee and it's been restored, but she's doing okay. But I'm just saying, these are, these are burdens. We bring those with us, the struggles of life we bring with us into the church. But we're also called to look out for the interests of others. And sometimes we can be so consumed with ourselves that we're not looking even for the struggles and heartaches and the burdens of others. But Paul is saying this is what we need to focus on. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So this isn't some, someone ignoring their own interests, but a balanced and considerate attitude of care and concern toward others that flows out of a gospel-saturated mind. This selfless humility is the mindset that Paul is calling the Philippian church to embrace. So as heavenly citizens, we're called to pursue unity through humility, fueled now by the example of Christ. This is our third point. Unity has been commanded. Unity through humility has been explained. But now, unity through humility is illustrated, and the only person that Paul can think of, rightly, that will illustrate what, you, what this unity through humility actually looks like is Christ himself. And he begins by reminding then the Philippian church, and then ultimately us, what he's talking about and why he's talking about it. He says in verse 5, "...have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus." He's already previously talked about being of one mind. It's this attitude, this this mind that is being connected here. And you have the privilege of having this mind because you are part of the body of Christ. So what is meant by the word mind? Alec Motier 
is helpful here. He says that the mind in the Bible refers to what we feel about things, how we react to them. It raises the question of what things we consider valuable and what constitutes a worthwhile objective in life. So your mind is your inner man. It's your heart. They're all kind of interchangeable words here. It is the way you see things. It's the way or the things you value. It's your attitudes. It's your goals. It's your aims that govern how you think and act and ultimately how you live. So the question Paul is getting at is who or what governs your values, your attitudes, your goals, and your aims. And he's saying that all who are reading this passage, that the mind that you and I need to have is the mind of Christ. So friends, what we read next now, although an incredible section of Scripture in and of itself, is given to us, not just to stand in isolation, it's given to us to make a point about the church living out this attitude of humility and other thinking as they flesh out uh, what it means to be the church. And what we begin with now in this illustration is the humiliation of Christ, verses 6 through 8. And it begins now with Christ and his equality in heaven. Look at verse 6. Who, this is talking about Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Friends, what Paul is saying is that Jesus was actually and truly God. He was in the form of God, and he was equal with God. He shared in the glory of God. In his high priestly prayer, um, which is recorded for us in John 17, Jesus prays to the Father, and this is what he says. This is verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. In other words, the equality was already there. He had this wonderful privilege of heaven. Jesus didn't hold on to that unity and equality with God as something to use for his own advantage. There was no selfish ambition going on. He wasn't striving to get beyond this equality with God. There's no conceit or arrogance on his part. He wasn't grasping for equality because he was already fully and completely God. There was nothing more to grasp. But rather than viewing his equality with God as something to keep, he saw it as qualifying him for his humble descent to save his people. And so from this place of heaven now, we find Christ's humility coming to earth. And we're told here, first of all, that he emptied himself. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So he emptied himself, first of all, first of all by letting go of the privileges of heaven, privileges that were rightly his. He emptied himself, secondly, by taking the form of a servant, literally a slave, the king, the ruler of the universe, the one who fashioned and shaped it with his hands becomes a slave. He emptied himself by being born in the likeness of men. He didn't lose any of his divinity, but he willfully set aside the free exercise of some of his divine attributes, and in doing so became 100% God and 100% man. The God-man, we would say. Now the question is this. What will this God-man do once he took on human form? 
Would he be like one of those superheroes that we have in the Marvel stories that has some unique kind of power, but uses it for his own end, for his own benefit? You know, I want to take over the world, right? That's the kind of thing. But Jesus doesn't do that. He's already the king of the universe. He's already the creator. He's already the the, the Christ, the Messiah. What does he do then as he comes to this earth? Well, here's what we're told. He humbled himself. He emptied himself, and then he humbled himself. Verse 8, and being found in human form. And that expression just really is repeating what he's just said in verse verse 7. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Now, we've sung about that this morning. We've celebrated that. This is all part of the gospel. Rather than using his power to assert himself, he chooses to humble himself. He becomes obedient, not just to the point of death, but ultimately to the kind of death, the death on the cross. And, you know, there are lots of people that died on the cross, but there was only one person that died on the cross that bore the full brunt of the wrath of God for the sin of mankind. The point that Paul is making is that Jesus could not have been any more humble or any more obedient. His humiliation had a purpose beyond himself. It wasn't just, oh, I want to go down to earth and see what it's like. Now, there's some, like, you know, some stories about, you know, super gods and all that kind of stuff. I want to go down and kind of mingle with the people, right? You know, this is like uh, Aladdin where the princess wants to come down into the city, kind of, you know, no one knows who she is. No, he comes down. And he becomes human. He's there. But he doesn't just come to experience this world. He does. He tastes it. He, he experiences it. He, he, he faces the same temptations that we would, we would be tempted with. But ultimately, he comes to go to a cross. Right? This is why at Christmas, you say he was born, what? To die. He came for the purpose of the cross. And this is really his selfless humility for the sake of mankind. Now, I don't know about you, but I enjoy flying. I enjoy taking trips, and I enjoy getting on an airplane. I have done through my life, and some of that's because of my, my father's association with British Airways. But I've had the privilege of flying first class a couple of times in my life, not because I had the resources for it, um, but... but um, it's not my normal experience, but the first time I ever did it was when I was 12, and we were flying from England to the States, and because my father worked for British Airways, we flew standby, and we were bumped up to first class. We were the only people in there. It was a 747. Of course, this was years ago. This is back when they had the lounge on the top, and we, you know, I had a, a grilled steak for lunch, and we were just pampered by the people that were there. We went up to the, to the lounge to relax again before the kind of TVs that you could have up there, none of that. But while the plane is in the air, I was invited to go into the cockpit and meet the captain and the co-pilot. I sat in the captain's chair and held onto the yoke and all that kind of stuff. It was quite an experience. Didn't realize how incredibly unique that situation was. The second time I was on a flight was from New York to Moscow, and I was bumped up from economy for some unknown reason beyond my comprehension. Um, and it was a very luxurious experience from JFK to Moscow, first class, um, again, somewhat pampered. I could have anything that I wanted. I just had to press the button, and they would come and help me. 
I enjoy flying. Um, <clears throat> and so would you, if this is your situation, right? I read this week of a lady who was on a flight, and she was so drunk that she became antagonistic toward her fellow passengers that the flight attendants had to move her to the back of the plane. Um, this is while it was in flight. And um, then the, the captain calls for everyone to fasten their seatbelts because they're coming in to land. And she started to fight with the flight attendants. And so they had to, um, they, you know, they tried to help her to, to, you know, to, to get the seatbelt on. She wouldn't do it. And she got up and she was fighting. And so it eventually turned out that they, the only thing they could do was to force her into one of the toilets and to lock the door. <laughs> so for 20 minutes, she's in there. And the plane comes crash, you know, coming down, it lands and stuff like that. Everyone's off, and then finally they can, they can get her off. Uh, these are crazy, funny things that happen on planes. And if we were there, we'd be like, what is this crazy lady doing, right? Why is she so drunk? Why is she behaving this way? It just doesn't make any sense. Now, for the sake of analogy, and this is a terrible analogy, but I hope you'll understand where I'm going with this. Imagine that the world of God's creation is an airplane. And in the first-class cabin, there are only three persons, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they're always there enjoying the privileges of first class. It's the world in which they live because of their sovereign status. But where are we? We might like to think that we're in business class, that we are deserving of all the work that we've done to get the points that we can get there or pay the money. And, you know, we feel like we've worked hard enough to get a little bit of pampering, a little bit of room. We use our gifts and, and, and skills wisely. We deserve a little comfort and privilege. Well, there's a few more of us that might not be quite so bold, but we would say maybe we're in, you know, the premium economy, economy plus, you know, where you have a little bit more leg room and you get preferred, you know, you get on before maybe those, those economy people, you know what I'm saying? You know, it's that kind of a thing going on, right? Um, and, and then maybe the rest of us who really want to be humble would say, you know, we just, we're on that group where they say, okay, go find a seat if you can get there and you're fighting with the luggage and all that kind of stuff, right? Um, I think a lot of us would identify with that, but friends, I want you to understand something. In God's flight status, there is no business class. There's no premium economy. There is no economy. There's only crazy drunk men and women locked in a toilet. <laughs> it's a terrible analogy, but you get the point. But Jesus comes knocks on the door, welcomes you out, gives you the ticket to first class and says, I'll take your place. I just want to give you the picture here of this privileged status and the humility of Christ and the reality of who we are. We think we're far better than we really are, but we're really a bunch of crazed, drunk people saved by grace. See, Christ let go of his rightful privileges in heaven to seek us out in our filth and sin in order to rescue us from our bondage and welcome us to share heaven with him. His humble and selfless act toward us. He pursues us. He's interested in us. This is his humiliation. 
And of course, his humiliation is followed by his exaltation. What was the result of Christ's humiliation? Was it worth all the pain, the suffering, and the hardship? Paul reveals two things that happened to Jesus. First of all, he is exalted. Look at verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Jesus didn't humble himself because he knew exaltation was going to take place. He humbled himself because of the condition of man. He came to save mankind. He went to a cross to die as that sacrifice. But the Father now exalts him. And of course, the exaltation begins with Christ's glorious resurrection. He raises Jesus from the tomb. And if you remember the preaching of Paul and of Peter in the book of Acts, the resurrection is at the heart of the gospel. What what people were upset with when they preached the gospel wasn't that Jesus died for them. It was that he rose again. It was that the, 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 this resurrection was, was really the capstone. This is, this is what was so different. He rose again. And so Christ, you know, rises from the tomb, and exaltation continues with his ascension into heaven. He's taken up, promising to return one day for his church, and his exaltation finishes with Christ's glorification. And that's what we read next. He is given a name. This name is a declaration of Christ's absolute sovereignty over his creation. Notice what it says, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven, on earth, under the earth, the three realms of God's creation, heaven, earth, under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Do you, you see what's happening here? Paul is saying, look to Christ. He humbled himself. He, he pursued others, even though he had the right of staying with the privileges of heaven. And the Father then exalts him because of his obedience. And when we consider how things turned out for Jesus, we are given the incentive as believers to rise to the challenge of being like-minded in the body of Christ, pursuing unity in the body of Christ, and doing that through humility fueled by the example of Christ. And friends, we must realize that the path to exaltation is humility. It's serving others. This is why James says in chapter 4, verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. That's why Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 6, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Humility and exaltation go hand in hand. Let's just all bring this to a close. What's Paul arguing for? He wasn't just trying to give you a picture of what Jesus did, although it's a beautiful picture and we've hardly scratched the surface of it. He's arguing for something that is absolutely necessary for the church to 
make sure that they are partnering together as the church for his glory. They're all citizens of heaven. And citizens of heaven not only need to be united to stand against the enemy, but citizens of heaven need to be united to make sure that there is unity and harmony taking place in the body of Christ, that we're not so consumed with ourselves that we come together thinking about one another, concerned about one another, seeking to have a common mindset of humility, of selflessness, of service. And so we have our burdens. Yes, we do. But even with those burdens, we're able to look to the needs of others and use our, our gifts, use our talents, serve the body of Christ in such a way where he is going to be glorified and exalted. Now, here's the question I have for you. Do you have the mind of Christ? And if you're honest, you're going to say, no, I have it. It's available to me but it is something that I am still pursuing. How many of you here are completely humble? Raise your hands right now. We want to see, by your pride, your humility, right? I know some of you wrote the book on humility, so that's fine. No. We haven't arrived at the kind of humility that Christ gives us an example for. How many of you think about the needs of others before yourself? These, these are attitudes that, that Paul is saying is necessary for a body to have to truly be united. And it's a unity that flows out of our gospel DNA. It's a unity that, that flows in and permeates all that we do. And that's why you know, I might be right now standing before you as pastor, but there are going to be times when I'm standing with you and we're cleaning a floor, we're vacuuming somewhere. Why? Because we're working together. This is God's church. We are His people. We use our gifts together for the furtherance of the body of Christ and for His glory. We're not in this place for selfish ambition. We're not in here to, to, to kind of show our conceit. We're here to be humble and to consider one another before ourselves. Jesus is the example of that. And if we're going to be a church that functions the way Christ wants us to function, revealed now through the, the words of Paul, these two things, humility and considering others, need to be essential in what's happening here at Gateway Bible Church. Is this something that you are growing towards? Is, are these characteristics or, or attitudes that are in place in your heart. Friends, all this can only happen if Jesus Christ rose from the dead. You see, it's his resurrection that gives us new life. And this new life that we have in Christ because of the resurrection compels us now to be humble and to be selfless and to consider one another over ourselves. Lord, we thank you, first of all, for your resurrection. We thank you, Lord, that although we're crazy men and women stuck in a toilet, in bondage to the things that we are pursuing, 
that you would let go of your privileges. You would humble yourself by letting go of those privileges and coming to the earth and taking upon yourself the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of men. Well, Lord, not just because you wanted to, it was a nice thing to do, but because you had a plan in mind and it was our rescue. We thank you, Lord, that you looked at us and, Lord, you didn't, you didn't vomit, <laughs> but you loved, you extended grace, you pursued, you drew us to yourself, you died you were the sacrifice, Lord, that paid for our sins. Lord, you welcome us into your family. You've given us, Lord, rights as citizens of heaven. Lord, we are truly a privileged people. But Lord, with all those privileges, may we now as your church live out of the gospel, out of this resurrection reality, this new life that we have in you. May we live in such a way that we are pursuing unity through humility, fueled by the example of your Son. Give us wisdom and strength, Lord, to do that and to do it for your glory, we ask in your name. Amen.